0: Privileges that I've had over the years um, as the lead pastor here at the River, uh, we're going on nine years now, um, is uh, you know we've taken very seriously the raising up of uh, emerging leaders and giving them space and a voice. Uh, and so this morning we have the opportunity to hear from one of those. When we were going. Uh, through this series on scripture um, along with the preaching team we decided we needed to have some kind of a seminar right in the middle of it on how to read the Bible Um, because we can talk about scripture all we want but if we don't know how to actually engage scripture how to read it um, it it leaves us kind of empty in our approach and um, so we thought you know who could we bring in to do this and then almost unanimously in the room we said we don't have to bring anybody in we got somebody in house who could handle this really well um and so everybody around the table said stephen bailey is the guy um so stephen's going to come up this morning stephen is married to kelsey uh they're married for about a year and a half now um, living in marital bliss still um, he is a bible teacher at Eastern Christian High School in North Halden, New Jersey um, he's also finishing up his master's degree program in ancient Judaism and Christian origins um, so he might be the smartest person in the room today um, definitely when it comes to scripture uh, I love nerding out about the Bible with him we do. We'll grab coffee once in a while and just have a nerd session um, and talk about scripture and get into the nuance. Um, but he has such a great way of getting into the nuance, but making it then so approachable. Um, so, without further ado, let's give a warm river welcome to one of our own, Mr. Stephen Bailey. So. And some some someday we'll probably get to say doctor, but for right now we'll say Mister.
1: Ooh, I got supplies today. There we go. <laughs> All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, wow, I don't. I planned an introduction for myself, but I feel like I don't even need to like say anything else. That was great. Um, Other that, that I've been here uh, since I came here, uh, second, came here, been here since I came here, that's funny, Um, been here since my second semester of my freshman year um, at college. Um, My sophomore year I got plugged into youth and children's ministry, I think around my junior year I got plugged into worship ministry. Um, I met Kelsey actually right where Brett is uh, on this floor for one of the weddings from our old friends uh, Tommy and Michelle Bellow who are doing youth ministry elsewhere. But I met her right there and got married in this church. So this is just another wonderful river chapter in my life right now. But uh, about a month, if you've ever had a conversation with me, you know that it's no secret that I get real nerdy when we talk about the Bible, okay? It's my favorite thing to study. If anyone knows the Enneagram, I am a five, which means that um, the way their vocabulary describes it, this personality, like, finds a niche topic and then dives straight in and just doesn't stop going down, down, down. And I'm still going down. I feel like I haven't reached the bottom yet. Um, So my two niche topics are the Bible and Lord of the Rings. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Not Lord of the Rings. (laughs) So Tim asked me about a month and a half ago if I could guide our church into some principles that we can adapt when we read scripture, and I'm very excited to nerd out with all of you guys and theologize with you today on inner in the middle of our scripture series. So uh, first I want to just kind of refresh with our discipleship metric, okay? We're in the middle of our series, we're just discussing how um, we regularly spend time in the scriptures and know how to apply them to our lives. Um, Here it's in the I and my case, but I use we and our right now. Um, And last week, if you were not here, this is just a quick refresher because I feel like this is a good principle, a good principle that we need to apply while we're studying today, is that um, scripture is the path to blessing it's a path for transformation, not information. Path for revel- revelation, not rules. Um, and then finally, we're going to cling on to this good old verse in 2 Timothy 3:16, because it's really the it really purposes why we even bother reading a 2,000-year-old text. You know, if you think about it, we don't apply Hammurabi's code or. Um, Plato's um, sayings, or Aristotle's sayings, the same way we look to the Bible for guidance, you know. So, Scripture, it truly has this weight of authority in our lives, whether you fully believe in God or whether you've been believing in God your entire life. We recognize it as an authoritative book. So, it says here that all Scripture is God-breathed or God-spirited, and if you're going to be literal, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that's just exactly what we're opening our hearts to do today. So, um, right now, um, I'm going to ask James and David to pass out a special uh, sheet for you guys to use today. So, there's a lot of fun information that we're going to go over today, um, but we have very limited time. So, I'm going to go through the information at a reasonable pace, And right here is a packet for you to fill in the blank of the information here, so you can apply it later. You can fold it up and stick it in your Bible, okay? Um, These are generally good principles to follow when you're reading scripture and doing an inductive study. It gets you started in the right place. Um, If you guys um, also would like more resources, I have a resource page at the end and at the bottom, at the second half of this packet to help you uh, move on, okay? Also, if you've been watching any Bible Project videos or if you've been uh, reading the Bible Project blog, which I also recommend because they get real scholars from the biblical studies world to write these blogs for, that are understandable for middle schoolers, okay? Um, and they go so in-depth in information. I recommend reading and watching those videos. It's wonderful. Explore their page. Um, I'm also going to give a shout out to a podcast called uh, The Naked Bible Podcast by Dr. Michael Heiser. He goes a little bit more in depth on some specific things, but he is a fun podcast to just listen to while you're on the road. So, this whole talk is going to be on the podcast, so if you need to refresh or review, you can listen to this again later to fill in stuff you missed. Um, this powerpoint will also be available to you for download, okay? So th- these resources are for you to use later if you want to really focus in on one thing Please focus in on one thing if you have a question and you want to ask write it down So you don't forget it because questions are super important and the Bible is meant for years long years worth of transformative study So like you'll always have questions and that's a good thing And there's always going to be a way where you can find out some sort of rev- resolution to some of these questions, okay? so um, Here we go. Now, how to read the Bible. Um, Let's just begin with a quick word of prayer. Um, Holy Father, you are sovereign above all the nations, and you are king of our hearts and of this earth. Um, Yeah, we are taking a moment of surrender to open up our hearts, to let you transform us from the inside out, and what we need to do to orient ourselves to understand these people that experienced your presence so profoundly um, two to 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, uh, let the stories of what you did then be relevant to us now and see your active work that happened then happen again today. So we love you, good Father, and we trust that your Holy Spirit is going to instruct us well. In your holy name, amen. So now, a sip of water. Here are our tools to use in a biblical study. So we have three main tools, and we're, these are going to zoom into three minor tools, okay? Okay. For preparation, we're going to discuss discernment, translation, and genre, historical context. We're going to talk about land, language, and literature, um, and then for literary context, we're going to talk about meta-narrative, characters, and setting, and God versus evil. All of which you can find in other resources if you want to go deeper in your study. Okay. So, for preparation, I'm going to need James Tyson to come on up and be my assistant really quick. Okay. James, I need you to put these three hats on your head, okay? Because all great messages have a physical metaphor. So put them on your head. This one's the best one to put on first. So put it on there. I have a big head too, so these should fit on real easy. Here, I'll put them on for you. It's okay. All right, face the crowd. There are three hats on his head. And just like James has three hats on his head, we'll put this one sideways because we have a front and back and now we have a sideways. But the same way that we have three, he has three hats on our head, often when we approach scripture, we have three hats on our head. And these hats, honestly, for the most part, kind of don't belong there. Um, So I want to kind of describe this a little bit. So the Bible, when we read it, has scientific elements. We can see science in there. We can see, like, morning, afternoon, night. You know, that's a scientific thing, talking about the sun. But here's the important thing. The ancient Jews didn't think of the Bible as a science book, the way that we understand science today. They didn't have science the way that we understand science today. They're gonna describe science in their own terms and how they understand the world, not how we understand the world. So we have to be humbled to that. So we have to get rid of our science gap, okay? That's the first thing, because if we want the message of Jesus, gotta get rid of how we understand science, okay? The next thing is we have to get rid of a history cap. Now, this is funny because I'm also bringing to you history, but sometimes when we look at history, we look at the Bible as only a history book, we lose sight of the message of God, okay? So we use history to create context to get the message, okay, which is important. But in other cases, we focus too much on how precise the history is in the Bible. Now, if the Bible was concerned with precise history the way we are in the 21st century, The Bible wouldn't skip over 50 to 100-year periods of time if they were concerned about precise history. They're trying to tell you the story of what God did in history. So in order to really get the message of Jesus in the Bible, we do have to remove a precise history cap on, okay? And then the last one, and if Brett and Raquel, if I hit you with a hat, I deeply apologize. The last hat to remove is our 21st century political science cap, okay? Because... They didn't understand politics, they didn't have politics the way that we have politics today. So you're not going to see Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Conservative, Liberal, any views in there. You'll, you might see parallels, you know, and that's okay, but they're not going to understand it the way that we understand it today. So we can't infringe that on the text. So we have to remove this politics caps on if we're going to see the message of Jesus, okay? Because sometimes that can be like a, a lens, it can be like the part of the hat that keeps you from seeing everything above, you know? So we have to remove that hat. What I want you to put on, okay? I'm going to take off the glasses and then put them right back on you. (laughs) I want you to put on spiritual glasses so you see God's redemption and everything. Okay? Can you see better? Okay, these are new headphones, okay? I want you to put on headphones so you only hear God's love, okay? That's the only thing you need to hear. Here, James, you're good at putting your own headphones in. And then you're going to need some gloves afterwards because you're going to want to put to work everything that you've learned. Okay? The message of God's love is not meant just so we can stay in our own heads, but it's so that way we can go and apply it and give it to everyone else as well. It's an act of receiving uh, through what you hear, through what you see, and then what you can go and give out to other people because it's not yours at the end of the day. It's what Jesus has given you and that you're sharing with everyone else. So, James, thank you so much for being up here. Give him a round of applause, everybody. <clears throat> And most importantly, filter everything through the words love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So, um, we're gonna start with our next piece on discernment. Um, you can't literally mimic the cultural practices of the ancient Near Eastern world today. You can mimic the words of Jesus and apply the desires of God to get today. Okay, so here's what this means. Um, there's a lot of cultural things that they did that don't really translate well today. So for instance... Um, Paul describes, and they all, the Bible describes, household rules. It doesn't necessarily mean it's for today. If it works well, it works well, but in some cases, like maybe he describes some rules that we can't apply today. Um, and what does apply, though, is how he talks about how husbands are to honor their wives because like, that is pleasing to the Lord, and wives are to honor their husbands because that's loving the Lord, their God, with all their heart, and loving their neighbor as themselves at the same time. So while the household rules might not be the same, the cultural practice, uh, the, not the cultural practice, but the spiritual practice of loving God and loving neighbor can be applied today, so we can do that quite easily. What we're called to do is take, make a, our own cultural copy of what the Bible is asking us to do and apply it in this day and age. So that might mean that there's some advice that the Bible gives us, like some little rules and tips to help us live better and operate better. That's always good, but you can't Um, make that the focus. The focus is Jesus and his redemption and how he transforms people from the inside out. That is the constant message that scripture is trying to point to us. So we have to be humble to that and aware of that. So, our next metric in preparation is translation. So this is one of my favorite things to study because there, if you've probably noticed, you've probably gone to Barnes & Noble or seen Amazon And there are a bunch of translations that are available to you to use. Right here, I'm holding a new international version, the NIV. And there's a wealth of translations that you can choose from, frankly. Um, Here's why. Um, uh, Well, here's the first thing. Um, My students will sometimes ask me which is the best translation. Um, I'm going to tell you the same thing that I tell them, that the best translation of Scripture is often the one, it's not even often, it's the one found in the first century. So we do need a time machine, okay? Okay, so if you have a time machine, please give it to me. Um, I'll be here after the service. But anyway, in a lot of ca- and the reason for that is that in a lot of cases, there aren't direct Hebrew or Greek equivalents in English, and that's okay, because the essence gets brought to life with every translation. Okay? Um, so when you're looking for translations, there are two types that scholars will either bounce between. There is a formal equivalence, which means that they're translating Scripture word for word from Greek to English or Hebrew to English or Aramaic to English. Okay? That means, um, for a phrase in Hebrew, um, which, uh, a phrase in Hebrew that's often used is bat-yerousalayim, which literally means daughters of Jerusalem, okay? That's what it means. So if we read that, we're going to think, oh, it's like the city of Jerusalem has children, or like female children, you know? But that's not what it's literally saying, it's an idiom. So that's where a dynamic equivalence comes in handy, because it relates thought for thoughts or ideas. And what you find is that actually describes the towns surrounding Jerusalem, okay? The daughters of Jerusalem are an expression for the little towns and villages that are surrounding the city of Jerusalem. It's like the city is a mother city and it has little babies all over the place. So that's the best way to understand the difference. And there's a whole array of different translations that go on this scale. And this is a good picture of that scale, a Bible translation continuum, okay? This is going to be available for you online. If you Google Bible translation continuum, you should see this. It gives you the array from formal word-to-word to to dynamic thought-for-thought. Message is at the far end of thought-for-thought because its goal is to paraphrase, which is still an excellent translation as well, okay? There's no bad translation, you just need to understand what translation you're reading. So for example, with NIV, their goal is to relay the most middle ground as they possibly can, being word-for-word, but mostly thought-for-thought. The ESV tries to go as middle ground as they can, but they're more concerned with the grammar, okay? And interlinear, which is all the way on that end, this is going to, its goal is mostly for study, so you're going to want to, it's going to help you pair up what word is matched with what in the Hebrew grammar, okay? So there's no bad translation, just know which translation your Bible falls in on the continuum, okay? And then when you're ready to learn Hebrew and Greek, we can have a conversation, because that's always fun to do, and I'm looking for a buddy. But anyway... Uh, Next thing on preparation is genre, okay? The Bible is not one specific book. Rather, it's a collection of scrolls compiled specifically for humanity to read conveniently, okay? Um, Each scroll, if you think book, each scroll represents a different writing style over a thousand years. There's a lot of layover in some of these scrolls and writing styles, but there are nuanced differences, and we have to be humble to that. And it's over a thousand years, um, sometimes over 15 hundred years. So we have to be aware this is a long period of time. That's like the difference between us and the Byzantine Empire. That's a long, long time. We don't write the same as the Byzantines and neither did John in Revelation write the same as Moses in Genesis. Okay? So, take a deep breath. (laughs) So here are some of our genres right here. We have the Old Testament um, genres, the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, I've summarized them into three. You might have gone through Sunday school learning a bit more, but I, the, um, if you go to Bible Project, they'll try to summarize it in three as well, so I want to be consistent in that language. But we have narratives, which are often found in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and a lot of um, the historical or prophetic literature. Okay? Um, when we read a narrative in the Torah or, sp- uh, or in some of our history books, we're supposed to read it in reflection to God's intention in creation, Okay. So God created a perfect world without murder, without stealing, okay? We have to read all the evil that's happening in contrast to God's original intent in creation. So when we see, like, Abraham and or David sleeping with Bathsheba, our inside is supposed to go, oh, that's not right. Or when we see Abraham um, sleeping with a woman that is not his wife, okay, not the one where the promised child is coming through, we're supposed to say in our souls, oh, that's not right. Um, narratives in the Torah are supposed to be read in like a passive experience, which means that you read them, and then you physically, emotionally respond and say, oh, that's not right, or oh, wow, he's really righteous, you know? You see the righteous versus the unrighteousness in each character. Um, human characters act evil, and it's not okay, okay? But they also act good, so we can't discredit their good. Our, our human characters are a little bit flawed, and we'll get into that. <laughs> but prophets... Um, They reflect on the Torah. These guys will be more direct in telling you who's righteous and who's not righteous. So if you want to know if a prophet is speaking or writing a scroll, they're going to tell you this person was righteous in the eyes of the Lord, or this person was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, okay? They're concerned with describing the current evil of the Israelites, um, comparing it to what God's original intention is, and then showing God's promised redemption that he's revealed to them. Um, the prophets will often mix poetry and narrative styles together. So you'll read Isaiah and there'll be a lot of poetry, and then there'll be a break of a story, and there'll be some more poetry. Read them together as poetry helps you evoke feeling, while narrative kind of gives you a little bit of a story of what's going on as well. And then finally, poetry. Um, this one gets its own area beyond prophets, because it's one-third of the Bible, okay? It often describes how we feel about God, Torah, and his promises, um, his salvation, and sometimes his seemingly absent nature. Like, if you read some of the Psalms, David is confused, like, God, where are you? Or Lamentations. They're like, God, how could you let this happen, you know? Um, And they summed it up to that God might be absent, okay? Realize that God is always there, okay? But these are the writers describing their feelings about what God is doing in this moment. And we can relate with that sometimes, you know? So... Keep in mind for the Old Testament that these are three major genres to look into. Oh, and also poetry. They're not locked into a historical narrative timeline like the other ones, but they supplement the stories of Scripture, okay? So now for New Testament, we have gospel narratives, which I'm going to include Acts in as well. So this will be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and here's the reason why, okay? So gospel is a style of writing in the Greek world. Okay, gospel is a declaration of good news. It was often used to declare the announcement of a new Caesar. Um, in Isaiah, we find it's also used to announce the victory of a king or the new, a new king's uh, will. So Acts will follow this declaration style for a lot, of, it's, uh, a lot of the book. But it's also a historical narrative, and it makes, mimics the his, ancient historians like Hesiod and Josephus. So it's good to understand that Luke is combining a little bit of... Hesiod and Josephus are ancient Greek writers, by the way. But um, Acts and... The the author of Acts and Luke is the the evangelist Luke, and he often combines the gospel and the historical element to it, to his writings. So now letters. Um, It's important to know that ancient letters that Paul writes and Peter and John write are... um, usually, are not even usually, but they're a half a conversation, okay? They're letters written to the old churches, and they're usually in response to an older letter that they were given while they were traveling. Um, so Paul's advice, or John's advice and Peter's advice, is usually for that time period. But, needless to say, needless to say, but regardless, they still deliver the message of Jesus all throughout the letters. Paul is very good at looking at their present circumstances and their conflicts, and drawing it back to the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. So now here's one genre that often leaves us confused um, in how to read it, and often we have different interpretations on how it's going to happen, or we are avoidance of it because we don't want to know how it's going to happen, but it's the genre of apocalypse in the Bible. So it's shared by the New and Old Testament. Um, the only apocalypse in the Old Testament is the last half of Daniel, And then the book of Revelation is one whole apocalypse. In fact, if you look into a Greek Bible and they title Revelation, they call it the Apocalypse of John. Apocalypse means revelation. Um, Revelation means apocalypse. They're one and the same word. Um, So apocalypse are actually not about the conclusion of the world, okay? It's actually about the renewal of God's creation back to how he originally wanted it okay? Followers of Jesus don't go to a VIP club while the earth suffers, but instead we participate in worshiping God as he renews the earth and defeats evil completely. Apocalypses are also filled with ancient Jewish imagery because um, the ancient Christians are are Jewish. Sorry, excuse me. So if you have questions about that, this is a whole thing that I can talk to you about one-on-one, but we got to move on. (laughs) So, historical context. Um, for, this section, for this section, I want to paint a picture of the ancient world in your minds while you read scripture. This is outlined well by my uh, professor, Dr. Notley, in the Ancient Judaism and Christian Origins program at NIAC. Shameless plug. Um, when we think about context, we need to be aware of land, language, and literature. What I want to outline before I start this section is that everything about the Bible comes from the ancient Hebrew and Jewish cultures, Okay. So in the New Testament, Jesus is Jewish, Paul is Jewish, and John is Jewish. Um, Their Judaism is defined by showing people how to reach God the Father through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. However, they still do Jewish practices such as Passover, sacrifices at the temple, and then Jesus celebrates Hanukkah in John. So these are good things to be aware of, that this is their culture, this is how they practice. Okay? Keep that in your mind. Um, Christianity back then does not look like our Christianity today or even Martin Luther's Christianity. It actually looks Jewish because they are Jewish and they believe in Jesus as the Son of Man. Okay? They're starting everything, so this is the culture they're coming from. We have to be humble to that. So I want to show you first land. Okay? For land, I want you to see that Israel is very hilly and treeless from north to south. Okay? Its treeiest place, okay, treeiest I know is not a word, but I invented it, there we go, is north of the Sea of Galilee and along the Jordan River, okay? Why? Because that's where the most fresh water is, okay? The picture above is of the Galilean area, okay, and the picture below is of the Dead Sea area, okay? The plant life is usually shrubs that are yay high, you know, with the exception of short trees here and there. So think olives and um, grape vineyards, you know, short grape vineyards. Um, um, and fig trees all over the place like that's that's the idea you want to get like it 's just short trees that are scarce throughout the area it's a shrubland okay it's, um, and it's important to know that Israel was a massively a huge intersection point for many cultures. It was the land bridge in which many cultures would pass through to make trades with various kingdoms for instance, Egypt would take to go from south to north to get to babylon or greece or greece to babylon and vice versa that's why so many of these cultures are influential and and talked about in the bible you know because they would trade all the way through it as a result the israelites were locationally a great stop for all these different cultures travels Um, however it also meant that whichever country could control the trading routes had the best money at the end of the day Archaeologically, we have tons of evidence of ancient Egyptian, Babylonian, Greek, Roman, and Israelite battles along this road for financial control. So it's good to keep in mind that while the Bible story is happening, usually in the background in a larger historical narrative, there's sometimes this vie for control for different like trading routes. So that's why in the Torah, like the first five books, there's a lot of Egyptian talk because Egypt largely has a lot of control going into Israel, and that's why the Israelites will go down to Egypt. And that's why later in the um, Old Testament, you'll have a lot of Babylonian stuff coming down, because now they're getting more control of the empire. And by the New Testament, Greece and Rome have come through, you know, they're vying for control over this area. So this big battle is happening to these people. And these people are at the center stage of God promising to redeem humanity to himself. So now inland, um, it's good to know that Israel has this subtropical climate with two main seasons, a rainy winter period from November to May and a dry summer season for the remaining six months. The annual average precipitation is estimated around 800 millimeters in the north, 400 millimeters in the center, and and 20 millimeters around um, Elate, which is around in the south area towards Gaza Strip. This is basically to say that in the most northern part in Galilee, Jesus was in the rainiest part of Israel, okay? In Galilee, it's lush. So don't imagine a desert when you think of the gospel narratives and you think of Jesus' mission. Think of very, like, lush and fruitful groves all around the place. So if you even go to the Bethsaida Plain up there today, it's still, um, the soil is still so rich there that a lot of farming communities have planted there because of the beauty of the crops that it produces, okay? So it's still actively today a great, um, a great, uh, agricultural resource, okay? So just keep that in mind, that towards Jerusalem, it's going to be a little bit more dry, but it's still lush, okay? But up in the north where Jesus is, it's so lush, okay? And then finally for land, I want you to have in your mind that, Jesus, uh, that Jerusalem always takes the center stage in the narrative, okay? Everything directionally is referred in relationship to Jerusalem. So Jesus and Paul, for example, will often go up to Jerusalem even though they're traveling south, Okay, that's because in their mind they don't have a science mind. Um, they have an ancient Jewish first-century mind. Prophets will comment on the Torah. The poetry books will comment on both the prophets and the Torah. And the New Testament will comment on the entire Hebrew Bible. Okay, why? Because when Mark is writing his, uh, writing his gospel, he has the scroll of Isaiah next to him, and he's looking at his quote that he wants to use, and he's copying down that quote, into his gospel letter. And then when we go to Romans, um, Paul is doing the same thing. Often, they also had them memorized because they had a different culture than us because um, memorizing Torah was an important thing and they often read these scriptures off, um, all the time. So... Then we, and a good example, one that we used at a Good Friday, Tim made a good implementation of this, but in Matthew 26, 46, we have Jesus cry out in a loud voice at three in the afternoon, "Eli, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, this is actually Jesus taking time while he's on the cross to quote from Psalm 22. So, in the New Testament, whenever you encounter this moment, when a single line from the Old Testament or a whole block of text from the Old Testament is used, okay, um, a good practice, you don't have to do it if you're crunched for time, but a good practice is to look at the bottom of the page where the footnote is, okay? and they will usually li- hyperlink it for you where in the Old Testament it is. So in that case, it's in Psalm 22. So in Psalm 22, 1 through 2 in the NIV, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the start of the entire chapter. Why are you so far away from saving me, for, so far away from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out day, day by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest." Um, this is only part of it, because that's as much as the slide would allow me to fit, you know. <laughs> but Jesus' intention is not for you just to remember that one line, but for you to remember the entire poem. So when he's saying, "Eli, you're supposed to, like, almost finish the rest of the psalm for yourself, you know. It's like if I were to say, if you're happy and you know it, you guys would go, you see, like, that's the same thing. It's the same exact thing because they memorized and sang scripture all the time. So any childhood song that you know that's memorized and someone starts it and someone else finishes it, the Hebrew people could do that with scripture. So Jesus is literally starting off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the rest of them are singing the rest of the psalm in their head. Because a lot of scholars also believe that there were large parts of scripture that were practiced in song. You know, because so, it's a better mnemonic device to remember. So keep that in mind while you're reading scripture because... The New Testament writers and some of the Old Testament writers are often reflecting on previous moments in scriptures, and they will hyperlink them. They will never tell you, sometimes they won't tell you explicitly when they're referencing scripture, but it will be familiar, and you're supposed to recognize, oh, they're doing something evil because scripture tells them earlier not to do that. So I've got to keep that in mind. So now here's our final phase. We are almost done. Here, coming in for the long stretch, literary context, everybody. Meta-narrative. So the Bible is a historical book um, that chooses to retell history through story. The biblical authors are concerned with truth over fact, not fact over truth. Here's what I mean. So when you think about a lot of our news sources today, um, we often get the confliction in different reports on what's going on. But they all have quotable evidence that is most of the time really, really sourced, or video evidence, okay? That's an example of people giving you fact but distorting the truth of what's really going on. Okay, that's why it's good to practice reading different sources to get different interpretations. Our culture in the news is very concerned with giving you facts and telling you their truth but not giving you the truth. The Bible is the opposite. They will tell you the truth, but the facts are not what they're concerned about. For instance, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. A lot of scholars believe that it wasn't just 5,000 people because they recorded only men okay? That's not counting for the women and children, okay? If we wanted precise fact, we would ask for the 15,000 that Jesus fed, or the 7,000 or 8,000, or how many were exactly there. But the point of that story is not to tell you the exact number that Jesus fed. It's to tell you that Jesus relied on God's provision so much that when he blessed the food, it broke and multiplied and fed an entire audience that was sitting on a hillside, And that's the truth of the miracle, that God's provision is so deeply profound it can feed the multitudes and have leftovers. Okay? So it's more important to understand that this is what they're trying to give you, the truth over the fact, not the fact over the truth. So here's a quote from Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. when it comes to meta-narrative. Here we have the grandest story of all, God's own story. That is, it does not purport to be just one more story of humankind's search for God. No, this is God's story. The the account of his search for us, a story essentially told in four chapters, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. In this story, God is a divine protagonist. Satan is the antagonist. God's people with the agonists, um, although too often referred to the antagonists, with redemption and reconciliation as the plot resolution. Um, this is basically to say that God is the good guy, Satan's the bad guy, and then we're sometimes as humans in between trying to figure out if we side with God or not. <laughs> okay? And then creation will move, and the story of the Bible will move through these four movements. If you, read a Bible pro- if you watch a Bible project video, they will often move their videos through these four movements of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So here's an example of how this works. It's a creation. The earth is created for God's glory and partners with humanity to rule it. The fall. Humanity decides to rule on their own within evil. Okay? Redemption. Jesus teaches us how to rule as human and then diminishes the power of evil. Restoration or consummation, as Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart will call it. One day we can rule without evil around us because God will ultimately destroy it. Okay, this is how that meta-narrative works. So now, I want to describe characters and setting because this is really cool. All of it's really cool, but still. Human characters, often their name is symbolic in regards to their identity, okay? So, remember, humans are secondary characters. God is the protagonist. God is interacting with these humans and, get, and allows them to have these divinely attributed names, okay? So, um, for example, Adam actually is the Hebrew word for humanity, okay? And Eve means life-giver. And what you'll find is in their story, their punishments actually correlate to their names. Adam has to work the Adama, which means dirt in in Hebrew, and Eve has pain in childbirth, being the life giver. Also, Saul's transformation to Paul is a great example of why human character names are important, because Saul was one person and then becomes Paul as a new person, but more importantly, taking on the name Paul symbolizes his mission to the Gentile world, because Paul is his Gentile name. Setting also matters. Ask yourself, does the story take place in or out of Israel Judah? Location does matter. Wicked lands are filled with wicked gods. In the ancients' minds, being outside of the land means typically being outside of God's protection as well. So keep that, in f- keep that fact in mind when you're reading Ezekiel and God brings his presence to Ezekiel in Babylon. God is actually showing him the vastness of his presence across the world, beyond Ezekiel's own understanding of where God could go. Practically, here's more evidence for you that the Spirit of God will go with you even if you feel like you're in exile from God's presence. So the last and final thing we're going to talk about is God versus evil, a wonderful subplot in the Bible that is often either underlooked or misunderstood. Okay, it deals with the problem of evil and the problem of Satan and demons. Okay? So evil things, um, evil enters the world in Genesis 3, and it's divided into three categories. We have spiritual things, so like Satan and the demoniac or demons which is just an anglicized way of saying demigods, Um, physical evil, which is like humans and empires, and external evil, which is like suffering or poverty or um, natural consequences um, from the world, natural catastrophes, I should say. So demons make their arrival in Genesis 6 as Nephilim, and we find that the missions of Christ is to respond to these creatures and stop their evil. Empires are also seen as evil in scripture, between Babylon, Egypt, Rome, and even Israel when they become wicked. The prophets are very very specific in describing the wickedness of the empires as being anti-Yahweh. Suffering is also listed as an evil effect of the world. Jesus' ministry largely combats the evil of greed while preaching on generosity. However, the biblical authors do struggle with defining who causes evil and how to avoid it best, which brings us shortly to wisdom literature. Okay, so wisdom literature is part of poetic writings, and they deal with the question of how to live a good life or righteously. Okay, so Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and David are listed among the righteous individuals that the New Testament considers wise. And by wise, we mean how well they are able to honor God's commandments. However, this isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card for all their evil. It's just a recognition that at these characters' bests, this is what humanity should look like in relationship with God. So each book has a different idea on how to live righteously. Proverbs is simple. You do good, you receive good. If you are evil, you get evil, sort of thing. Ecclesiastes takes a step back and says, wait, hold on a second. The world isn't that simple. Sometimes the evil prosper and the good suffer. You know, how do we explain that? And then Job takes the time to say, suffering just happens, but God is faithful in it. Um, contrary to popular, popular belief, the point of Job is not to, for Job to point out that God is the source of evil or Satan is the source of evil, but it's the fact that evil happens and there are things that happen in evil, but God is faithful through all the evil and all the suffering we have in this world. So then Jesus' ministry comes in in the conclusion when we read uh, the narrative of Scripture that Jesus defeats evil um, on behalf, um, with, not on behalf, but with God the ultimate wisdom for Christians to follow is that Christ shows us how to live victoriously in our suffering through his love, as we read in Philippians 410 through 15. This is important to understand because well, Christ has called us to be ambassadors of his presence, and when we partner with his presence, we get, to see, we get to see evil get defeated over and over and over again. When we walk in line with what the Bible has asked us to do, the power of Jesus' fulfilled wisdom, um, is that we get to see healing, families restored, deliverance from demons, and raising of the dead. The biblical narrative is clear that God is fighting evil, but evil is never winning, no matter the circumstances we experience. So now, if you would like to conclude or continue studies on your own, here's some additional resources. When I went on an archaeological dig at the beginning of my program, um, he writes um, very um, specifically towards gospel studies, but gives a good um, historical approach on how we should read Jesus. Um, I can give him to my high schoolers, and my high schoolers can understand him. All right. So, now, this is the end of the study that I have with you and went a little bit over, but I just want to take time to say that um, the Bible is a book that you're meant to experience over a lifetime. There's no mastering it. Um, There are people who have PhDs who are still learning it and still uncovering different things about it. So don't feel like you're going to get this all in one year or one month or one day. Be patient on yourself and, uh, Just realize that this is something you're meant to experience, not to be the smartest person in the room. This is a, like, I can honestly say um, that God has so much left in me to do to understand about the word of God. Um, God has chosen to use this word to transform us, not to hurt us. Um, And I know that sometimes there have been previous uh, people in our life who have used scripture as a rule book or as a book of abuse and enslavement rather than a book of freedom and blessing. So um, I want to take time right now to bless you guys in this new season. So if you could all stand and receive this blessing. Um, But yeah, in the name of the Holy Spirit, I want to bless you all in a season of renewed eyes and heart as you look at Scripture in a new way. There's no obligation for you to be the smartest person in the room with Scripture. There's no obligation to um, routinely memorize it unless this is a desire out of your heart to practice loving the Lord your God with all your mind, okay? There's no obligation. Um, I bless you with the privilege to read Scripture and the opportunity to sit at the feet of a gentle rabbi, okay? And as you sit at his feet, I bless you with the opportunity to receive his love and understand him as Jesus the man who is also fully God and came to earth in the first century. My um, blessing for you is also that you let him transform your mind, your heart, your body, and your soul. So that way you can bring the work of Jesus to, and the feet of Jesus to anywhere that you work, with your friends or with your family. And I bless you in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit to receive the fullness of his love and see the fullness of his blessing as you engage with whatever chapter of Scripture that you're in. And this is not a place of rules, but it's a place of intimacy. Be blessed in that. In Jesus' name, amen.